0: you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd invite you to open with me to the book of Ruth. We'll be continuing our short series in Ruth with chapter 2 this morning. Um, If you remember, that falls in between the book of Judges and the book of 1 Samuel. And last week we saw how uh, Naomi and her family fled from a famine to the country of Moab, and then once the famine was ended, they fled back to Bethlehem. But it was just Ruth and Naomi that went back to Bethlehem. So now we'll pick up on our story in the city of Bethlehem with Ruth chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And pay careful attention for this is the holy and inspired word of God. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and said, The man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us and your salvation to us in this word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate it to our minds that we might understand, that we might grasp hold of Christ through this text, and that you might bear fruit in our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit as we give thanks for the redemption that we have in our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have only ever watched the movie, but I have it on good authority that the classic story Les Mis is actually all about a man and some candlesticks. John Valjean was released after being imprisoned for 19 years because he stole some bread, and he struggled to live and provide for himself once he was free, but he could not comprehend how he could do so without stealing. But a bishop took him into his house, fed him, and gave him a bed to rest in. But even this act of charity made no sense to John Valjean, and in the night, he stole the bishop's silverware and ran away. When the police caught him, they brought him back to the bishop saying that the thief claimed the silver was a gift. And instead of pressing charges against the man, the bishop said that he was right, it was a gift. Even more, he told Jean Valjean that he forgot to take the silver candlesticks as well. And so he gave all of this silver to him and told him to use it to become an honest man. The bishop's righteousness and generosity saved Jean Valjean from another imprisonment. Even as he walked free, he was imprisoned by sin he was unable to keep himself from committing a crime. He needed the righteousness and generosity of another to redeem him from crime and poverty. This is very similar to the story of redemption in the book of Ruth. Remember that Ruth and Naomi did not just suffer under misfortune, it wasn't just bad luck. They were suffering under the hand of God. Like all Israel, Naomi's family was punished with death and barrenness for their sin. They tried to run away from God's punishment when he sent famine. They went to, Boab, to, to, to Moab, rather, but God's punishment followed them there. And yet in chapter 2, we begin to see how the faithfulness of one man is able to redeem them from their misery, which was brought on by their unfaithfulness. Like the bishop in Les Mis, Ruth and Naomi's Redeemer brought them up out of darkness, which was caused by their sin. And he did so through his own righteousness and kindness. And in the shadow of their redeemer, we see the righteous one who redeemed us from our sin. And so in our passage, we will see how we are redeemed by the righteousness of another, and we'll see that in three points. First, meeting by chance, finding favor, and last, hoping in a redeemer. So we'll begin with our first point in verse one, meeting by chance. Our passage opens by interrupting the narrative to introduce the final main character. And this should pique our interest and make us wonder what role this character will play because of the details that were given about him. There are a few details we're given that are especially significant. First, we're told that this man is a relative of Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. And this new character is a blood relative of Naomi, which raises the question in our minds, will he take action to alleviate the bitterness of his relatives? Will he perform the duty that a family member has in Israel? The next detail we're given also makes us wonder if he will rescue our damsels in distress. He is described as a worthy man. In Hebrew, this is actually two words. It's gibor and hail, mighty and valor. He's a man of might and valor. Gibor, the first word that means might, um, it, it's used to characterize David's mighty men in Second Samuel 23. These are strong, uh, uh, elite warriors. This can also be metaphorically used to describe an influential or respected person. The second word, uh, valor or hayil, can likewise describe power or strength of a warrior, but it can also be used to refer to wealth, competence, or bravery. If you're familiar with the Proverbs 31 woman, she is described as a woman of ha'il, a woman of excellence. And in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth actually comes right after Proverbs, and so that's likely to give Ruth as an example of the Proverbs 31 woman, and Boaz as an example of the wise man in Proverbs. And although these two words, gibor and ha'il, can describe a warrior, the picture we're given of this man has less to do with physical strength and more to do with his moral strength, his strength of character. This man is a very good man, a manly man, a man of substance and standing. He was wealthy and influential, but that did not corrupt him. He was also good and upright and honest. And the last detail we're given about him is his name, Boaz. This description of Boaz should surprise you, especially if you remember the setting of the book of Ruth. As we learned last week, this book is set in the period of the Judges. One of the darkest and most dangerous times in the history of israel israel was oppressed by their enemies but only because they were being punished for their own evil actions israel was full of wickedness and corruption but in the period characterized by evil and danger boaz is characterized as a man of worthy character perhaps physically strong but even more importantly morally strong He refused to conform to the evil and foolish culture around him. Instead, he strived to live with righteousness and wisdom. And so this question also, uh, this description also raises the question in our minds, what will this worthy relative of Naomi do for her in her bitter situation? After being introduced to Boaz, the narrative continues. Remember from last week that Ruth and Naomi left Moab where Ruth was born and returned to uh, Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And this was about March or April. Also remember that Ruth and Naomi are both widows and childless. They have no one to provide for them and they are in danger of going hungry. They have no provision for food, clothing, shelter. And because the harvest had just begun when they arrived in Bethlehem and they had no source of food, Ruth asked Naomi for permission to glean in the field of whoever showed her favor. And we can only wonder why Ruth took this initiative to provide food for them. It might have only been Naomi's age that prevented her from going into the fields with Ruth, but it may also be that her bitterness that we saw in chapter one has turned into full-fledged despair. She's unable to leave the house. But whatever the reason, Ruth seems to be familiar with the Mosaic Law in this regard. Repeatedly, God commanded Israel to leave the remnants of their grain in the field so that uh, the poor, the traveler, and the widow might glean the leftover grain and thus have food. You can see this in Leviticus 23:22. This was a way for Israelites, for landowners, to passively provide for those who were in need in their region. They were not to harvest too thoroughly. They were to leave some left over so that the poor could go and gather it for themselves. And this is what Ruth intends to do. She intends to take advantage of this law of Moses. And she does not have a particular landowner in mind. She's simply going around the fields to whoever, whoever will let her work in their field, whoever she finds favor with. But why would she need to find someone's favor if this was commanded by God? This is a law that Moses gave Israel. Why would she need to have permission to do this. Ruth was not only a widow, she was also poor and a traveler, so she had every right to glean in someone's field. There should have been no one in Israel that would have not allowed her to do this. But remember our setting again. This is, this is set in the period of the judges, and the period of the judges was characterized by evil and disobedience. And so it is not surprising that Israel disobeyed this law and oppressed and neglected widows. Because of the danger and evil that abounded at this time, if Ruth stumbled into the wrong field, she would have at least been turned away with a harsh rebuke, and at most, she could have been abused and harmed. But what do we read in verse 3? What actually happens? It says Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. This is the same Boaz that the narrator inconspicuously introduced in verse one, the relative of Ruth and Naomi, who was a worthy and wealthy man. And it says that Ruth just happened to come to the field of Boaz. In Hebrew, it says her chance chanced upon the field of Boaz. It's ironic and full of hyperbole. From the human perspective, this verse reiterates what we already saw. Ruth had no intention of going to Boaz. It was like she stumbled upon his field by chance. But if we look beyond the human perspective, we're forced to read between the lines. As we read in Proverbs 16:33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. In other words, there's no such thing as chance or luck. And so when we read that by chance, Ruth happened on to the field of Boaz, we're being forced to see that God's providence is at work. Not only did Ruth successfully avoid being harmed at any other field, but she was brought to the perfect field for her to find favor and provision. This didn't happen by human cunning or wisdom, but only by the grace of God. God was watching over Ruth, keeping her from harm, and bringing her to the exact field that would further his plan of redemption for Ruth and Naomi. Because as we saw in verse 1, Boaz was both able to save them since he was their close relative, he was worthy and wealthy, but he was also more than likely willing to save them since we're told that he was a man of upright character. And so this is no chance meeting. It was orchestrated and ordained by the sovereign hand of God. He cared for and protected Ruth and brought her to the feet of her Redeemer. And this again raises the question for us, what will Boaz do? Will he act according to his character now that Boaz... now that ruth has stumbled upon him and we find our answer to this question in our second point finding favor in verse 4 the narrative uh, the narrative formally introduces us to boaz as soon as he appeared on the field boaz blessed his workers and his workers responded by blessing him this shows us in the very least that boaz treated his workers with kindness and that they had a high regard for him they respected him But more importantly, this exchange shows us that Boaz was a pious Israelite. Remember, again, our setting. During the time of the judges, Israel was characterized by idolatry. They were all turning away from the true God to worship false gods, especially Baal. But not just in Israel in general, even Bethlehem, the, the specific city that we're set in, was characterized by idolatry. In Judges 17, we read about a young Levite from Bethlehem who ought to have been serving before the Lord in the tabernacle, but when he traveled and he went to a house of a man named Micah, he became a priest for Micah's household, and he ministered before the idols and false gods that Micah worshipped. This Levite from Bethlehem was a priest of idolatry. But during a time characterized by idolatry and false worship, the first thing we see in the speech of Boaz is his faith in the one true God. He did not bless his workers in the name of Baal or any other false god. He worshipped only the Lord and did not conform to the idolatry around him. He blessed in the covenantal name of God, which is Yahweh or I am, the one that the Lord revealed to Moses at Sinai. He blessed in the name of the Lord and worshipped him alone. And after blessing his workers, the first thing that Boaz does is inquire into the identity of the foreign woman who is working in his field. And his foreman informed him in verse 6, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And he tells her that she asked to glean among the fields and he allowed her to do so. And we've seen the strength of Boaz's character and his piety, but now that Boaz knows the identity of Ruth, we will see his faithfulness. His faithfulness. If you remember from last week in uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, Naomi calls uh, her daughters-in-law faithful. She says that Ruth and Orpah have dealt kindly with her dead sons and with her. This word kindly in 1 verse 8 can also be translated as faithful, loving, merciful, um, loyal. This is a Hebrew word, hesed, and it's difficult to translate with just one word, but it encapsulates a person's commitment and goodwill to another person and and their relationship to that person. An act of faithfulness, or hesed, is a voluntary act that goes above and beyond what is required. For example, in chapter 1, Orpah was well within her rights to leave her mother-in-law and go back to her people, but she was acting without faithfulness. And yet, Ruth's commitment to follow Naomi, despite their outward condition, is a wonderful example of what it means to show faithfulness to someone in Scripture. It's going beyond what is required of you showing commitment and goodwill to another in their relationship beyond what benefits you. Likewise, the way that Boaz treats Ruth is full of faithfulness, of hesed. Ruth did not only find favor in his eyes so that she could glean in his field, and Boaz did not just obey the Mosaic law, he went above and beyond what what was required of him. First in verse eight, Boaz instructed Ruth not to glean anywhere else, but to exclusively work in his field. As we'll find out later in the narrative, he meant for the whole harvest season. He was giving her exclusive right to his field for the whole harvest. And he did this because he knew that Ruth might be harmed or shamed in any other field, but also he knew that no other landowner would give her the privileges that he was going to give her. Next, Boaz told Ruth to keep, a close, uh, to keep close to his female servants who were working in the field. And he said that he has already commanded his male servants not to touch her. Remember how evil the Israelites were in the period of Judges, just read Judges 19 if you're not sure. This command not to touch Ruth wasn't the action of an overprotective relative. This was a necessary measure to keep Ruth from harm and abuse. And last, Boaz said that when Ruth is thirsty, she should go and drink from the water his male servants have drawn. And this is, sh- this is surprising. It might not be surprising to our ears, but in a society that still has to draw water from a well or a river, there are rules about who draws water for who. And usually a woman would draw water for a man. A foreigner would draw water for an Israelite. But here, Boaz says, drink the water that the young Israelite men have drawn. And so, He not only allows her to glean, he also ensures her safety. He provides for her water and he dignifies her. He treats her with respect and honor. In response to Boaz's kindness and generosity, Ruth responded in amazement. She fell to her knees and bowed down and asked, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? And notice the answer that Boaz gave. He did not say, you know, we're just family. He didn't point to his own character. He could have just said, you family, right? Or, well, remember what the narrator said, I'm an upstanding guy. He didn't do that. Boaz told Ruth that he has dealt faithfully with her because she dealt faithfully with her mother-in-law, with Naomi. He didn't point to anything in himself or any other reason. He didn't have any other motivation. He was showing faithfulness to her because of her faithfulness. The death of Ruth's husband, her faithfulness to Naomi, and her turning away from her pagan people and religion were all reported to Boaz. He heard about everything she did that we talked about last week in chapter one. And for all this, he blessed Ruth. He asked that the Lord would pray and reward her for her faithfulness, for she had come under the wings of the Lord, the God of Israel. This metaphor, coming under the wings of God, is often used in scripture to describe God's protection. It pictures God as a mother bird guarding his chicks under his wings, and here Boaz says that Ruth has come under God's wings. This confirms what we saw last week, that when Ruth clung to Naomi, she was clinging to the God of Israel. She was trusting in the Lord for her provision and protection, and so Boaz blessed Ruth in the name of the God she had clung to, that he would repay and reward her for all that she had left behind in Moab. Moab. And in doing so, he doesn't really realize how much he is acting as God's reward to her and how he is acting as God's protective wings for her. He has already ensured her safety by commanding his young men not to touch her. And so he's acting as God's reward and provision and protection toward Ruth already. The blessing of Boaz is the height of chapter two. It shows us his character on full display. We've already seen that he is a worthy and wealthy man. We already know he is pious but now we see his goodwill and commitment toward Ruth and the reasons that motivated his goodwill. Boaz could have done all the same things for Ruth with selfish motivation. He could have done it just to earn her favor so that maybe he could marry her, maybe he was thinking that, or he could have done it for any other selfish reason. But his motivations are pure and selfless. He recognized Ruth's faithfulness in her recent loss, not only of her husband, but of her homeland and her people. In light of that, His desire was for the Lord to repay Ruth and bless her for coming under the wings of the God of Israel. And he himself acted as part of the Lord's reward and protecting wings. But this is not the romantic scene that it is sometimes made out to be. This was not Mr. Darcy walking through the misty fields to tell Miss Bennett he loved her. This wasn't love at first fu- sight while working in the fields. Marriage was the furthest thing from either of their minds as we'll see in v- in verse 20. It seems like Ruth didn't even know that this man was a relative, a redeemer. And we'll see in the next chapter that Ruth had to propose marriage to Boaz. She had to take initiative. It wasn't on his mind. This means that the sole purpose of Boaz's generosity was to protect and provide for a young woman who acted faithfully toward her mother-in-law and who left all her family and her people and her nation to come under the wings of the God of Israel. There was no selfish motivation. This was pure and without thought of marriage or anything else. After Boaz provided for Ruth with protection and water and he blessed her, next he provided her with food. After continuing to glean in the field for some time, Boaz called Ruth back at mealtime and gave her bread and roasted grain he sat her with her reaper, with his reapers and, uh, and treated her like he was one of her hired hands. He treated her as if he, had, he was paying her and he was giving her food. He gave her the same food he was eating. He even gave her so much food that she couldn't finish it, and he sent her home with the leftovers. And this again highlights the generosity of Boaz. He did not have to give her a meal. He did not have to give her more than she could eat, and he did not have to send her home with what she couldn't finish. But what Boaz does next outstrips all his generosity and faithfulness so far. After Ruth finished eating and went back to glean the field, Boaz gave further instructions to his male servants. And we see this in verses 15 and 16. He told his male servants that Ruth was to glean even among the sheaves without reproach. And even more, he told his servants to pull out some grain from the bundles for her to pick up and repeated that they must not rebuke her the significance of this second provision is difficult to understand if we don't get an idea of what harvesting looked like in israel in israel the harvesters were usually men who would go through the fields and take handfuls of grain and they would cut it with their other hand and they would leave these handfuls behind them for workers usually women to bind them up into larger sheaves and so the mosaic law gave the poor the right to follow behind those who were bundling the sheaves together so that they could pick up any grain that the harvesters failed to cut or that the bundlers failed to pick up. And this is what Ruth was expecting to do, just pick up the leftovers that were dropped on the way. But look again at what Boaz does. He gives Ruth the privilege of gleaning directly behind those who were harvesting, not just behind those who were bundling the sheaves together. This means she was allowed to glean even among the sheaves that Boaz was harvesting for himself. But even more, Boaz commanded his servants to make it easier for Ruth by pulling out grain from the bundles for her to pick up. This goes well beyond what Boaz was required to do by law. He was actually incurring loss. He was taking from what should have been his and giving it to Ruth. Giving her from the grain that would provide for him and his household for the year to come. This required not only generosity, faithfulness, and magnanimity, this required Boaz to have great faith in the God who provides. Because only those who trust that God provides for their daily bread can be this generous. And Boaz gives us an example of this. He is not afraid of losing profits. He trusts that God will provide, and so he abundantly provides for Ruth out of his abundance. We get a a better picture of the extent of Boaz's generosity in verse 17. After gleaning all day, Ruth took home about an ephah of grain. And this was not a small amount. It could have been anywhere from 30 to 50 pounds. And it seems like she carried it home on her back. That's pretty impressive. But in one day alone, Boaz provided Ruth with enough grain to feed her and Naomi for at least several weeks, if not several months. That would have not happened in any other field. This was an amazing generosity that Boaz showed Ruth. And the abundance of grain that Ruth brought home made it obvious that someone was very generous to her. And so when Naomi saw it, she asked who it was that had been so generous. And so like last week in chapter 1, Naomi closes chapter 2 with an interpretation of what had happened. And so that brings us to our third and final point. Hoping in a Redeemer. Seeing the abundance of grain and the leftover food from her midday meal, Naomi asked whose field Ruth had worked in and preemptively blessed the man. It was obvious that Ruth had found favor in someone's eyes after all. And when Ruth introduced the man she worked with as Boaz, Naomi breaks out in in praise and thanksgiving and blessing. She said in verse 20, "'May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead.'" But she adds a significant detail that Ruth did not seem to know yet. She says, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. This means that Boaz's actions go beyond generosity and kindness. This is a man who had a legal duty to provide for Ruth and Naomi and redeem them from their poverty. The Hebrew word for redeemer is goel, and it refers to a relative who has a legal responsibility to help family members in need. Our English word redeem usually means to buy back or to uh, pay a ransom to save someone from slavery. And the Hebrew word can also mean this, but it generally means to redeem a family member from any hardship or difficulty, not just financial distress or enslavement. And there are a few places in the Mosaic law that define the role of a redeemer. In Israel, a redeemer was to buy back family members out of slavery. We see that in Leviticus 27. Also, to ensure justice is maintained in a lawsuit involving a relative. We see that in, in uh, Job 19. They were also to, in, uh, to avenge the blood of a family member who was murdered in Numbers 35. And to ensure hereditary property does not pass out of the family line in Leviticus 25. And so marrying a widow uh, whose husband died without an heir does not seem to be mentioned as a redeemer's duty. And that's what we'll see happens in our, uh, in our passage next week and the week after. But marrying a widow whose husband died without an heir does seem to fall within the broader scope of a redeemer's responsibility to provide for family, to ensure the family line continues and does not die out, and to ensure that family property stays within the family line. And so it's not clear which one of these roles Naomi thinks Boaz might play, but at least Boaz is able to generally redeem Naomi and Ruth from their poverty and widowhood. And this is already what he has begun to do. By providing them with abundant food, Boaz has already begun to redeem them from their hardship. When Naomi told Ruth that Boaz was a redeemer, Ruth added another detail, that Boaz had told her to only work in his field for the rest of the harvest, to glean in his field until the harvest was over. And again, this highlights Boaz's generosity and faithfulness. He allows her to do this the whole harvest, but it also gives them even more hope that Boaz might fully redeem them later on. Naomi's response to this last detail shows her concern for Ruth's safety. She said in verse 22, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. Naomi knew the danger that Ruth might face in any other field, and she may have been even worrying over Ruth's safety all that day, waiting for her to come home. But when she learned of Boaz's generosity and his repeated command to his male servants to leave Ruth alone, Naomi knew that she would be safe there. And so chapter two closes by summarizing the whole harvest season. Ruth worked with Boaz until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, which is about seven weeks total. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Even though this conclusion again highlights Boaz's generosity, it's anticlimactic, isn't it? We're left thinking, that's it? He just let her work in his field for two months but didn't do anything else? He left her to live with her mother-in-law? Ruth and Naomi are in a much better situation, no doubt. They have abundant food. They've found favor in the eyes of a relative who could redeem them. But they're still unredeemed. They're still widows and childless, still living without the physical and legal protection that a husband would have provided at that time. And the family line is still in danger of dying out since Elimelech, Naomi's husband, still has no heir. The family name and property might just end with Ruth and Naomi. And so this sets up the problem for chapter 3. After the the harvest, Ruth and Naomi have food, but they are still poor widows living on their own. But despite the anticlimactic ending, this chapter has shown us a major step toward the resolution of the whole book. Remember, the problem is Naomi and Ruth's widowhood and and, and the dangerous and delicate situation that, that widowhood puts them in. Because in the ancient world, without a husband, Ruth and Naomi had no guaranteed source of food, clothing, or shelter. They had no legal or uh, physical protection. And even though Boaz does not immediately redeem Naomi and Ruth, he has at least relieved them of some of their hardship. He has provided them with abundant food and given Ruth protection in the fields. And his presence in the narrative gives us hope that he will fully redeem them later on. But notice how Naomi interprets these events in verse 20. She said, May he, Boaz, be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. This word kindness is that same word for faithfulness, hesed. Naomi does not praise Boaz's faithfulness, but the Lord's faithfulness. The Lord has been faithful to the living and the dead. Naomi realizes what we saw in verse 3 that the Lord's providence was at work bringing Ruth to the field of Boaz. And she has realized that the Lord was their provider and that the Lord had not abandoned his faithfulness to Ruth and Naomi, nor to their deceased husbands. But there was no direct action of God. So how could Naomi have come to this conclusion? The only explicit action of God in Ruth so far was ending the famine in chapter 1, verse 6. But Naomi reads between the lines, and behind the generosity of Boaz, she sees the faithfulness of God. This is the way that God's providence operates. He usually does not work miracles. God usually works through ordinary people and circumstances in our lives to provide for us. This is what we saw in this chapter. God provided food for Ruth and Naomi, but he did not send manna from heaven. Instead, God was the ultimate provider and redeemer, standing behind the generosity of his servant, Boaz, Boaz. Just like God showed his faithfulness to Naomi through Ruth's faithfulness in chapter one, now God is showing his faithfulness to Ruth through Boaz's faithfulness. And this is how God works in our lives as well. He works through ordinary people and circumstances to providentially care for us. When we're suffering illness or struggling financially, God is still with us. He has not forsaken his faithfulness toward us. Our outward circumstances don't give us a measure for how much God loves us. The promise that God gave in Joshua 1.5 is given to all believers. God will not leave you or forsake you, just as he has not left or forsaken Ruth and Naomi. Do not think that God has abandoned you because of your difficulty, or expect him to always work a miracle when you are in distress. This is not how God operates. Like Naomi, we should see God's faithfulness in his ordinary providence, even in the faithfulness of the people who care for us. And like Boaz, we should strive to be a faithful person who cares for others. We should be faithful in providing and protecting those who are in need. As we read in Hebrews 13, we are called not to neglect to do good, and to share what we have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And the reason we are able to share and be content with what we have is because God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. This is what we read in Hebrews 13. Because God's faithfulness does not abandon us, we must not f- abandon our faithfulness toward those who are in need. As the bishop said in Le Mis to Jean Valjean, what we have, we have to share. And like Boaz, we can be the generous person that God uses to provide for others. But even more, Boaz is our example of a man who was faithful in a faithless time. If you had never read the book of Judges and you were only looking at Boaz, you would have never known how wicked and evil and corrupt the time that Boaz lived in was. And that's because in a time and culture where everyone was turning to idolatry and to sexual immorality and evil, Boaz was standing firm in his faith and his righteousness. He did not buckle under the pressure to please people or fit in, and he did not uh, give in to the taunts or persecution from his fellow Israelites In a dark time in Israel's history, Boaz is a light of faithfulness. And this is a lot like our situation today. This is what we're called to today. We're surrounded by moral chaos and idolatry. And just like in the book of Judges, everyone does what is right in his own eyes. But like Boaz, we are called to be faithful in a faithless time. We must stand firm and hold fast to the truth of Scripture, never giving in to the temptation of conforming to the world around us, nor buckling under the pressure when we are taunted and persecuted for our faithfulness. We must strive by the power of the Holy Spirit within us to become men of substance like Boaz and women of substance like Ruth. But Boaz and Ruth are more than just examples for us. They don't just point us to what we should do, they point us to what has been done for us. Remember what we saw in chapter 1. Naomi was walking by sight, not by faith. She was concerned for her daughter-in-law because she couldn't provide a son to redeem them. She thought it was her responsibility to save Ruth from her distress. But now that we see that God has come to them, that a redeemer has come to them without their effort or planning, in chapter two, we see that God himself has provided a faithful redeemer. They could not pull themselves out of the pit they had fallen into. They had to look outside themselves to the Redeemer that God had provided, the righteous Redeemer whose generosity went beyond the law's obligation. And the same is true for us. We can't pull ourselves out of our sin and misery. No matter how hard we try, we cannot redeem ourselves. We need to look outside of ourselves for our redemption. Because like Ruth and Naomi, who were cursed by God for their sin, and like John Valjean, who was imprisoned for his theft, For his theft, we are condemned for our sin. Remember, last week we saw how we are all born into a covenant with God, a legally binding relationship with Him. And because of Adam's first sin, we are born as covenant breakers, condemned by God for unfaithfulness to our legally binding relationship. So, to be saved from the wrath of God, to be saved from our condemnation, we need more than just a blank slate, we need a slate full of righteous obedience. We need to be turned from covenant breakers to covenant keepers. But we are like John Valjean. We are not able to keep ourselves from committing crimes. We are not able to not sin. We need someone else to keep the covenant on our behalf. Like him, like John Valjean, we need the righteousness of another to redeem us. And this is what we see in our passage. Ruth and Naomi were saved by the righteous obedience of Boaz. Boaz. Boaz upheld the law's command to provide for widows and especially for family members, and he even went beyond what was required. His faithfulness and generosity brought redemption to Naomi and Ruth. But even Boaz was not perfectly righteous. Even a worthy man like him committed sin. And he could only redeem them from physical hunger and temporal hardship. But there is one who never sinned, whose character was perfect, He is not only a worthy man, he is the worthiest man who ever lived. There is one whose righteousness brought not simply temporal redemption and life, but eternal life and redemption from sin. This is what I mean. Boaz is a type of Christ, giving us a picture of how Christ saved us through his act of obedience. Through Boaz's righteousness, God generously protected and provided for Ruth and Naomi's temporal life. But through Jesus's righteousness, God provides eternal life. Boaz sacrificed his prophets, giving Ruth even the grain that was rightfully his, but Jesus sacrificed everything he had, even his entire life, to give you life. Boaz went beyond the normal requirements of law, but Jesus perfectly and completely fulfilled the law on your behalf, in your place. And so if you trust in Jesus, then his perfect righteousness is yours. God does not see your sin anymore, he only sees the obedience of Jesus. He doesn't treat you according to your failures, but according to Jesus' success. This is the gospel from Romans five nineteen. For by one man's o- disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. We are made righteous, not by any act of obedience that we perform, but by the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. He is the true redeemer that Boaz, the human redeemer, was pointing to. The attention given to Boaz's character in this chapter was not to praise a man. It's to point us to the righteous one, the redeemer of our souls. It isn't clear yet what Boaz will do to redeem Ruth and Naomi, but there is no doubt what Jesus did to redeem you. He purchased you with his precious blood. He lived a perfect life of obedience to his Father. He did everything in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension to give you life, to make you his son and daughter. His righteousness is your righteousness, and his reward is your reward. It's true that, like Naomi, we can see God's faithfulness in the faithfulness of Boaz, but even more, look to Jesus. He is the ultimate expression of God's faithfulness to you. Through Jesus, God not not only provided our daily bread, he provided the bread that comes down from heaven, which gives eternal life. And because of Jesus' faithfulness and righteousness, we can be confident that God's faithfulness will never forsake us. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer, we lift up our voices in thanksgiving to you for the history of redemption you have recorded for us in the book of Ruth. We thank you for teaching us about our Lord Jesus Christ through the types and shadows of the Old Testament. But we give thanks especially for the gift of righteousness that you have given us in your beloved. Through the faithful obedience of Jesus, you have accepted us as obedient in your sight. You treat us as those who have fulfilled the covenant, although we have broken the covenant. We praise you for the forgiveness and redemption that we have in your Son. And we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would enable us to offer our lives as living sacrifices, showing our gratitude for our salvation. Give us the boldness and strength of character that we might remain faithful in our faithless time and stir up generosity in our hearts to provide for others. Use us in your wise providence to express your faithfulness to those around us. And as we prepare to give our gifts for the ministry of your church, would your Holy Spirit enable us to give joyfully and confidently? knowing that you never leave us or forsake us. In Jesus' name.